Well, please take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been going through the Gospel of John together, this um, amazing uh, story of the life of Christ. And we're kind of halfway through it, John chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 20 to 36 this morning. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Let me just read our text. Now, were there some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast? These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Father, we, again, are in desperate need of your Spirit to illuminate our minds, to understand. We know that um, these are just words on a page unless your spirit grants us understanding and makes application of them to our lives. Lord, today we wish to see Jesus. Thank you for the gospel of John. And uh, every week we're confronted again with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So show us Jesus again today in a way that would transform all of our lives and conform us more to his. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, on June 18th, 1940, Great Britain's legendary prime minister, Sir Winston Churchill, delivered one of his most famous speeches in the House of Commons, which was later broadcast to the entire nation. I don't know if we have any Winston Churchill fans, but you probably remember the name of this speech. It's simply referred to as their finest hour their finest hour. And Churchill made this speech in one of the darkest moments of, the, of World War II. Uh, France had just fallen to the Germans, and Adolf Hitler was now looking at the island nation as a launching pad for expanding his evil empire. And in the face of this severe threat, Churchill was determined to defend their country against the tyranny of Hitler's regime. And this speech really expressed his unwavering resolve to stand up to Hitler's war machine despite the great odds against England. And he knew that England was all that stood between liberty and tyranny. And if it weren't for Churchill's courage and and determination, Hitler would have ruled all of Europe and there would have been very little that we could have done as the U.S. uh, to change that because this was two years before we entered the war. Listen to the last paragraph of this compelling speech. Churchill said this, The battle of France is over. I expect that the battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. 
Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. The reason why I thought that was an appropriate speech to to refer to this morning is because I think Jesus showed similar courage and determination as he faced his approaching death. And he knew that very soon the whole fury and might of God's wrath would be turned on him. But he also knew that if he endured the pain and the agony of the cross, the the tyrannical rule of, of Satan would come to an end. And the world, as we know it, would be victoriously freed from sin and death. And so we see in this passage here, Jesus bracing himself to his duties, as as Churchill said, and expressing his unwavering resolve to stand against the cruel oppression of Satan and to do whatever was necessary, even die, to break the power of his sinister schemes. And so this was Jesus' finest Hour. Now, we've heard repeatedly as we've studied the Gospel of John so far about his time and his hour. That little word hour is pregnant with meaning and it simply refers to the time when God predetermined for Jesus to be crucified and resurrected to fulfill the ultimate purpose for which he was sent by God to this earth, which was to redeem mankind from their sins. Let me just remind you of, 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 this, uh, of this theme that started back in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 4, when Jesus' mother asked him to help um, provide more wine at the wedding of Cana, in John chapter 2, Jesus said, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. In chapter 4, verse 21, in his conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria, He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He said it again in verse 23, chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said when his brothers were coaxing him, um, almost taunting him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and, and, and show off as the Messiah, he said, my time is not yet here, verse 6, and then in verse Eight, he says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And then in verse 30, he said, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now in chapter 12, everything changes. Because here in two times, verse 23 and verse 27, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. And then he goes on in chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. Chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so up until this time, uh, up until John chapter 12, Jesus had intentionally avoided situations where he might be thrust into the limelight and be prematurely forced into being the Messiah publicized and promoted as the Messiah. And it really confused not only his disciples, but the crowds. Like, for example, when he provided food for the 5,000, people were all amazed and said, wow, this is the kind of king we're looking for, a guy who can can, can produce food out of nothing and we'll never have to work again. And and they started to cheer him on as, you're going to be our next, you're going to be the Messiah, you're the Messiah, you're going to be our king. 
Let's go to Jerusalem and overthrow Rome. And he immediately disappeared. And they're like, where did he go? Everything was going so well. Well, not only did he intentionally avoid situations like that, he also supernaturally escaped situations where the religious leaders threatened to arrest him and even kill him on the spot. I mean, there was times when, when they had stone in hand, ready to stone him, and he miraculously disappeared. And we know from the last couple Sundays that the Sanhedrin had decided that Jesus had to die. There was no getting around it. They had to kill him. But they didn't want to apprehend him during the Passover for fear that a riot would break out because he had the popular opinion and the crowds were for him. But despite their wicked plans, God had another plan. That Jesus was going to die at the precise hour when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. Why? Because he wanted them to see the connection, right, between the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was killed at Passover and Jesus, who was the Passover lamb, who died to atone for the sins of the world. And that's why rather than sneaking into Jerusalem midway through the Passover week under the cover of night like he had uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, now Jesus rode into the city on the first day of the Passover through one of the main gates in broad daylight with people cheering him on to signify that the hour had come. It was time. It was time. And so there's a lot going on in this passage here, so I've just tried to provide some, some hooks here we could hang our thoughts on as we walk through it here this morning. And so we're going to see the proselytes, we're going to see the parable, we're going to see the principle, the passion, the promise, the punishment, the protest, and the plea. Is that enough peace for you? Working the peace today. But hopefully it'll help you. Hopefully you grabbed the sheet in the back as you came in and you can just follow along with that outline. But first of all, let's look at the proselytes, verses 20 and 21. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, in order to harmonize the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most commentators propose that there was a gap between verses 19 and 20, when according to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleansed the temple. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus already cleansed the temple. Well, guess what? He cleansed the temple not just one time, he cleansed it twice. He cleansed it once at the beginning of his public ministry and at the end of his public ministry, once at the first Passover that he came to Jerusalem for when he, uh, was, his ministry went public, and then this final one. And so we already saw him cleanse the temple the first time, uh, the first Passover he attended in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And uh, again, the, the, the Synoptic Gospels say that he cleansed it a second time somewhere in the white spaces between 19 and 20. So just keep that in mind. And uh, I think this is helpful to maybe understand what stimulated or motivated the interest of the Greeks. Because the area of the temple where the sellers and the money changers were, where Jesus threw over the tables and upset the booths there, was likely the court of the Gentiles. And this was the, the outside of the temple area, uh, which was intended as a place for Gentiles to be able to come. They couldn't go inside the temple, but they could go to this outside area, the court of the Gentiles, to observe the Jewish religion in action in hopes that they would come to know the one true God. And so God designed the temple even as a, as a way to witness to all the other nations of the world. And it may have been that these Greeks were there in the court of the Gentiles, and they witnessed Jesus clearing the temple and cleansing the temple, and they were so impressed by what they saw and what they heard that they wanted to talk with Jesus personally about it. Now, the Greeks were, were the wanderers of the ancient world. They were the seekers of the truth, seekers of truth. And you would, too, uh, if you grew up under uh, Greek mythology, right, with all its pantheon of, of, of Greek gods and goddesses. And, and so the monotheism of Judaism probably looked very intriguing. It was very appealing to them, not to mention the fact that their gods were temperamental. They were capricious. They were immoral compared to the purity and the, the, the holiness and the immutability of Israel's God. 
And so the fact that these Greeks were present at the Passover feast, I think, was an indication that they no longer worshipped pagan gods or followed pagan practices. In fact, they might have even been Jewish proselytes, which were basically Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And in order to convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized, and uh, some of the proselytes even would get circumcised so that they could say that they had followed the, the Jewish law as closely as possible. And so the fact that they were coming to Jesus on this occasion, I think, pictured something very important, a very important transition in the life and ministry of Jesus, that, that uh, how after the Jews rejected him, the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles and many would believe. These Greeks were the other sheep which are not of this fold, right, that Jesus mentioned back in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 16. And so we see here Jews rejecting Jesus and, and Gentiles seeking Jesus, which is clear evidence that the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry was, was at hand and his miss, mission was on the verge of being accomplished. And again, Jesus didn't just come to die for the nation of Israel, but for, for, for people all over the world. Verse 19, right? So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Again, John loved to use that word world just to remind us, right, that, um, that, that Jesus didn't just die for Jews. He died for all men. Um, and this was, a, I think, an unwitting prediction here of how the gospel would spread throughout the entire world. And, and here's the first evidence of that. Uh, with these Greeks coming to seek a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Jesus. Now, it may have been that, that these God-fearing Greeks thought that Philip would be the most sympathetic disciple uh, to their request because he had a Greek name or maybe because he was from Bethsaida, it says here, um, which was in the northern uh, part of, of Galilee in the Decapolis region, which was the ten, ten Gentile cities. And, and so he probably had regular contact with Greeks. And, and so that's maybe why they chose him. Um, but notice, Philip wasn't sure what to do, and so he wanted to double check as he was screening these guys, and we often see the disciples in this role of screening people who wanted to come talk to Jesus, and, and uh, so Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, it may have been that Philip wasn't clear on what he should say to these Greeks and whether or not he should let them come to see Jesus, um, because Jesus had actually said that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, when he sent the disciples out two by two in Matthew chapter 10, he told them to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. So now he's got Greeks coming and they're not the lost sheep of Israel. What, what do we do with these people? So he runs to Andrew and together they tell Jesus. Now, again, we mentioned last week or a couple weeks ago that whenever you see Mary in the scripture, she's always where? at the feet of Jesus. Great example, right? Every time we see Andrew mentioned in the Bible, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus, brought Peter to Christ. Um, he brought the boy with the loaves and fishes in, in, in John chapter 6. And, but what a great example, right? That we would be like Andrew, that every opportunity we get, we're bringing someone to Jesus, we're introducing someone to Christ. There's one more statement here we can't overlook. I love what the Greeks asked. They began to ask him saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I've heard that many a Puritan pulpit had this simple phrase engraved on the pulpit somewhere where the preacher could see it the entire time he was preaching. Sir, we would see Jesus. I've heard of churches that on the back wall above the clock, right, which this preacher never really uses anyway, right, but against the back wall, sir, we would see Jesus. What a great reminder, right, that whenever a man stands in the pulpit, he has one primary task, and that is to proclaim Jesus and to show the glories of Christ. And this really, just this expression, sir, we wish to see Jesus, really sums up the duty, the great duty of the preacher. And I think you would agree with me that I think too many, there's too many pulpits in our world today where, where people are not seeing Jesus, they're seeing the preacher. 
And people leave on, on Sunday mornings or whenever the services are, and they know more about the preacher than they know about Jesus. I was reading an article this week about narcissistic preaching, where, where the preaching is all about yourself, and it's, it starts with you and ends with you, and, 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 and you guys know all about my life because I, I use, I'm the hero of all my stories, and I use my family and my situation. It's all about me, and you know more about Ken Ramey than you know about Jesus. I hope that's never true of this pulpit, that you always walk away knowing more about Jesus than you do about me or anyone else who stands in this pulpit. Amen? We wish to see Jesus. Great request from the proselytes. Notice the parable. In fact, John never tells us if Jesus ever responds to the Greeks. He, he simply responds to Philip and Andrew. He says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you got to know, when, when, when Andrew and Philip and the other disciples heard Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, you know that their heart must have skipped a beat or two. And they probably thought, finally, this is what we've been waiting for. It's about time. Surely they thought he's going to unveil his plan to overthrow Rome and initiate his kingdom. Or so they thought, because then he tells them a parable that I'm sure took the wind out of their sails. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies. It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus used this analogy of a, of a kernel of wheat to illustrate how important it was for him to die. And in order for a, for a seed to produce grain, it has to fall into the ground and die, and, and, and death is necessary for a harvest. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about how this is crazy. It makes really no sense at all. I, I did a lot of gardening in my growing up years, not by choice. My mom and dad were were gardeners, and we had this huge garden, you know, probably twice the size of this sanctuary, and, uh, and they made me work at it, and all the time I hated it, but I learned a lot about seeds, and, and my dad would, would mail order these seeds, and we'd get this big old box of seeds, and there was all sorts of carrot seeds, and there was, there were, there was radishes, and there was, you know, this kind of seed and that kind of seed, and, and, and you could leave those seeds in those packages for years, and they would never sprout and grow. But if you dug a hole in the ground or a little uh, furrow in the ground and you shook some of those seeds in that furrow and you covered them up with dirt, the craziest thing would happen. They would sprout and grow. That makes no sense. So you take something and you put it in the ground, you cover it with dirt. That, that's, what, that's what you do when you want to bury something. When you get, want to get rid of something, you, you put it in the ground and forget about it. Well, that's the paradox of, of Christianity. And I think this is a, a profound picture of Christ's burial and resurrection. They, they put him in the ground. They buried him, right? Thinking we're done with this guy. And what happens? He sprouts. He comes back to life. And the rest is history. One commentator said it this way. If he did not die, he would abide alone. He would enjoy the glories of heaven by himself. There would be no saved sinners there to share his glory. But if he died, he would provide a way of salvation by which many might be saved. Notice how he goes on to the universal principle here, the principle of this parable in verses 25 and 26. He wanted to make sure his followers understood that the same principle applied to them also, that they needed to die in order to live. Notice he says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, here, here's the paradox of the Christian life. We've talked about this a lot uh, over the years here at, at Lakeside, and, and uh, we've spent a, a good amount of time in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the one who emphasizes what, what uh, has been called the radical de-invitations of Christ, the things that Jesus said that, that seemed to be more designed to drive people away from him rather than draw people to him. Like, for example, Luke chapter 9, verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life 
will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And then he says in Luke 14, verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his... Excuse me, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Listen, you cannot be a Christian unless you hate yourself. Anybody have a problem with that? That's what Jesus said. You can't be a Christian unless you hate yourself. Well, the question is, well, what does that mean? Um, I go around beating myself, having a low self-image, low self-esteem, doormat for everyone. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about this. What does it mean to love your life. He says, he who loves his life loses it. What does it mean to love your life? It means the same thing to try to save your life, Luke chapter 9. It means to cling to your life, to keep it for yourself, that you're concerned with your comfort, your security, your prosperity, your possessions. You're consumed with doing what you want and living the way you want. This is my life, and I want to do what I want with it, and nobody can have it. I'm not giving it up to anybody. That's what it means to love your life and to, to save your life. And he says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. Not only are you going to miss out on the true purpose of life here on this earth, but ultimately you will lose your soul in hell. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You get everything else, you, everything you ever wanted in life, but you lose your soul in hell. So he says, if you love your life, not willing to give it up, right, to Christ, you're going to lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. What does it mean to hate your life? Same thing as what Jesus said in Luke 9 about losing your life. It means that you freely give up your life to Christ. Instead of living for yourself, you live for Christ. To, to hate your life means you love Christ more than you love yourself. In fact, you love Christ so much, it, it, it appears, it seems like you hate yourself and everything else in this world. When you hate your life, you, you view your life as expendable for the sake of following Christ. You don't live a self-centered life that's all about you. It's not all about you, right? It, it's not getting what you want and doing what you want. It's, 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 it's giving it up. And when you do that, paradoxically, ironically, you get to keep it. Not only do you get to enjoy abundant life here on earth, you also get to spend eternity in heaven. And this is the irony of this whole thing, is that you can either, this is your choice, you can either lose what you're trying so hard to keep, or you can keep what you're willing to give away. Your choice. You can either lose what you're trying so hard to keep, or you can keep what you're willing to give away. And so this is a great reminder to us that the Christian life is one of self-sacrifice. Every believer must undergo a spiritual death to themselves. And not just once, it has to happen how often? Daily. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is uh, where we came up with the name for our student ministry. Uh, 2.20 is based on Galatians 2.20. No longer I who live... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You say, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, trust me, God is going to help you do that. Okay, you don't have to figure out ways to die to yourself. God will show you ways that you can die to yourself on a daily basis. Listen to what Bruce Milne said. He said, through a combination of inward struggles, trying circumstances, opposition from the enemies of the gospel, and our wrestling with God-permitted weaknesses, we, like Paul, learn to die every day. So just know, whenever you face some kind of inward struggle, some kind of trying circumstance, some opposition from an enemy of the gospel, maybe a God-permitted weakness that you're wrestling with, guess what? God is helping you die to yourself. George Mueller was a great example of this. Y'all know George Mueller was the, the, the man who ran the orphanages there in England and lived by faith, and God just always seemed to provide for him. And few men have made a greater impact for the kingdom of God than him. And someone asked him, Well, what's the secret to your impact? What's the secret to your life? And Mueller hung his head and said, There was a day when I died. There was a day when I died. And then he bent lower and he said, I died to George Mueller. 
I died to his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. Has there been a day in your life where you can say that you died to yourself? Where you died to your opinions and your preferences and your tastes and even your will. You died to the world and its approval or censure. You even died to what people in this church think about you. It's part of dying to yourself. And notice he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, if you serve Christ... Rather than serving yourself, what that looks like is that you obey Christ, you model your life after Christ. That's what it means to follow him, to want to be like him, to to think like him and talk like him and act like him and smell like him, to be like him in every possible way. We follow him. And when that happens, it says, then where I am, there my servant will be also. In other words, Christ rewards us with his presence. And notice he also promises that the Father will honor us. He said, the Father will honor him. And so those who count all things as lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and serving Christ, listen, you may give up things in this life that are highly prized by everyone around you, by by worldly people, but guess what? You will be more than adequately compensated. I love what Jesus said to comfort Peter in response to the rich young ruler walking away from his opportunity to to receive Christ. And Jesus said, you need to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he walked away sad because he owned a lot of stuff and he wasn't willing to do that. And Jesus said, man, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Peter started freaking out and thinking, oh, what about us? And, you know, the, the guy came and asked, well, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And you just basically told him he can't. What about us? Peter says, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He had to throw the persecutions thing in there too, right? That's part of being a Christian, right? But whatever we suffer here for the cause of Christ is small compared to the commendation by God that we'll receive in the end. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So there's the principle of the parable. And Jesus lived his entire life by this principle. And he goes on now here in this next section to model what it meant to die to yourself and your own desires and your own interests and to completely surrender your will To God's will. Notice number four, the passion. The passion, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so as Jesus got closer to the cross, and he thought about it more and more, it troubled him. It agitated him. It literally threw him into confusion as he thought about what it would be like to be made sin for us, to become a curse for us, to face the full fury of God's wrath against our sin, to be separated from his father for the very first time ever. And he was expressing the emotional anguish and and revulsion of of just thinking about what dying on the cross would mean to him. And he asked a rhetorical question here. Should I ask the Father to save me from the the horror that lay ahead of me?
I think it's interesting, I didn't know this until studying this passage, that, that John is the only gospel that doesn't include the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that classic text where Jesus was wrestling, right? Father, if there's any way you could take this cup from me. He was talking about the cup of wrath that he was going to have to drink. And then he finally said, not my will, but thine be done. This is essentially the same struggle. This is, um, I guess, John's replacement, if you will, for the, the, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane to show us how Jesus struggled with the thought of dying for the sin of the world. And when he said, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name, it, he was essentially saying the same thing, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is another way of saying it. And here Jesus is, is showing the same courageous resolve that he would at Gethsemane where he ex- expresses total submission to the Father's will. And here he said, Father, glorify your name. Which, by the way, I think is a great example for us when we face some kind of crisis that, that troubles our soul, that agitates us, that, that, that throws us into confusion, that whenever we encounter a difficult situation, how do we pray? We, we need to submit to his will and embrace his will and pray that God will be glorified no matter what. God, just whatever happens, may you be glorified. You can't go wrong praying that prayer. And so we need to be willing to go wherever God tells us to go and to do whatever God tells us to do. And rather than praying to be spared from difficulty or delivered from difficulty... Jesus prayed that God would be glorified through and in the difficulty, in the challenge. He was more concerned about God's honor and glory than he was about his own comfort, his own safety. This was the passion of his life. This is what he lived for, to glorify God. That's why he was here on this earth. And and the scripture says that, that, that Christ or God was glorified in Christ. Nobody ever glorified or ever will glorify God as much as Christ did with his life. Again, Milne says this, as Jesus agonizes in that awful moment, caught, as it were, in the vice of his awful destiny, there emerges from the depths of his spirit a great yearning cry which lays bare the ultimate passion of his being. Father, glorify your name. It's about you, not about me. And then notice the promise, number five, Verse 28, then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus' prayer resulted in this audible response from the Father in heaven, assuring him that his glory was being manifest through his life and that he would bring him even more glory through his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, this is the third and final time that God spoke to his Son from heaven while he was here on earth. When was the first time he spoke to him? Remember? At his baptism, right? When he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said the same thing at his transfiguration. And now here at the end, as he approached the passion, the passion, the crucifixion, what was going on here? Well, this was simply a public acknowledgement that Jesus is truly the son of God. This is my son, as well as an endorsement of of his work. But notice, it didn't have its intended effect. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Did you hear that? Was Was that thunder? Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered in this voice was not come for, has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So these people lacked spiritual discernment. They mistook God's voice for either thunder or the voice of an angel. Surely it couldn't be the voice of God. 
But I think this is a good reminder for us, we've been talking about this the last few weeks, that God's voice can only be heard and understood with the help of God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. And so without the Spirit of God, the Word of God is just noise in the ears of those who are not in tune with the Father. And if you are not a Christian this morning, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, then what you're hearing this morning is Charlie Brown's teacher. Remember Charlie Brown's teacher? We're like, what was that all about? And if you're just hearing this morning and it's just kind of like, I have no clue what this guy is saying and I could care less what this guy is saying, that is evidence that you need to examine your life to see if you're in the faith. Because a true believer hears the word of God. They understand the word of God. They apply the word of God. And so here's the promise. And then look at the punishment number six. He goes on. He said, now judgment, verse 31, is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he's simply saying that his death would be a judgment on both the world and on Satan. You say, how does it judge the world? Well, the fact that Jesus had to die to pay for sin is an indictment on the sin of the world. Man's sin required God's wrath to be poured out on his one and only son. And furthermore, the fact that we murdered God's one and only son exposed how sinful we really were. We condemned ourselves. We showed why we deserve to be punished as the rebels that we are. That we would have the audacity to kill God's own son. And yet while we were killing him, He was taking our punishment for that very sin and all the sins we ever had committed and ever would commit. He took our judgment upon himself. Jesus also says that his death death was a punishment or would be a punishment on Satan, the ruler of this world. We know that's a reference to Satan because other places in John, he mentions this, John 14, 30 I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about the ruler of the world who blinds the eyes of the unbelievers. Ephesians 2, 2 talks about how we're all under the control of the the ruler, the prince and the power of the air. Uh, Ephesians 6, 12 talks about the ruler of 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 the spirit realm. So he said his death was about to come on the ruler of this world. He would be cast out. And again, this is the irony of the death of Christ, that Satan thought he had succeeded in doing away with Jesus once and for all. He was probably jumping for joy and laughing and, and, and just, just rejoicing that, that, that Jesus had been crucified. And it does say, Jesus said that, that Satan got into Judas, Right? And was the one that, that instigated him to, to betray Jesus. So Satan was all a big part of this. It wasn't just the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the Romans and Pontius Pilate. Man, Satan was smack dab in the middle of this whole thing. No one wanted Jesus dead more than Satan. And so he thought for sure, hey, I won. I won. I beat Jesus. I destroyed the Son of God. But little did he know that he was helping Jesus succeed in delivering people from Satan's domain of darkness and rescuing them from death and hell. And so what appeared to be a victory for Satan was actually his defeat. Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible and the cross, and it talks about how the woman will, will step on the serpent's head and the serpent will bite her heel, right? But she will crush his head. And so, yeah, Satan got in a lick or two, right? Jesus did die on the cross, but guess what? It was the cross that crushed his head. I'm glad we sang A Mighty Fortress. That was a perfect song. It says, and lo, his doom is what? Sure. 
I mean, that should change the way we live, guys, to know that we, we, we are fighting a defeated enemy. He's done. He's toast. He's history. He's a goner. Yeah, he still has power. He's still given free reign to do some things. But he's got no power over us. It should really matter in how we fight against sin, that we are fighting a defeated enemy whose doom is sure. We need to remind Satan of that. When he reminds us of our sin, we need to remind him of his destiny. And then notice what Jesus says here. He says, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now some would say that, well, that probably encompasses Jesus being lifted up on the cross and then being lifted up in resurrection and being lifted up in ascension, right? But we can't take that interpretation because look at the next verse, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of what? Death by which he was to die. And that was an expression that Jesus already used a couple times. John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, right? The, The Israelites were complaining, and so God sent snakes in there, and they were biting them, and they were dying, and so they cried out to Moses, Moses, help us, talk to God, intercede for us. And God said, hey, put a bronze serpent on a stake, on a stick and put it in the, in, the, in the center of the camp and when people look at it, they'll be healed. They won't die. Picture of looking to Christ in faith, right? He was the, the means by which we would be saved. That we would be, we who have been bitten by sin would not die because of it. John 8, verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He Again, this is a clear reference to his death, that he wouldn't die in his sleep, he wouldn't die in an accident, he wouldn't drown in the Sea of Galilee fishing with the boys, Uh, he wouldn't even be stoned, which was how the Jews would normally kill people that were worthy of death, and they had tried to stone him a number of times, but this was a clear reference that he would be crucified, that he would be nailed to a cross and lifted up. And it says, "If if that happens, if that happens... I will draw all men to myself. Now, we know he wasn't saying that the whole world's going to be saved. That would be universalism. He was simply saying that all who are to be saved will be saved through his death, through faith in his work on the cross, his substitutionary atonement for sin on the cross. Again, not all people without exception will be saved. He's simply saying all kinds of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And again, the context, he's responding to the Greeks, right? These Greeks that had come. And again, John wanting to remind us through the words of Christ that Jesus was not about the, just about the Jews, but he was also about the Gentiles. All men. Notice the protest. Almost done here. Verse 34. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they knew that he was referring to death. And uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't reconcile what he was saying with all the Old Testament passages that say the Messiah would live forever, like Isaiah 9, Psalm 89, Daniel chapter 7. They're like scratching their head going, hey, how can you say that? Because we know it says that the Messiah is going to live forever. So they protested and they're like, hey, how can this be true? Who are you, who are you talking about? And so they couldn't, they couldn't reconcile this with their ideas and expectations of the Messiah. If, if you hear the Messiah, then how is, this po- well, how is it possible you would die? And so they protest, and then that leads to the, the plea. He makes a plea, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. Wow, we could just camp out there and preach a whole sermon on that. We know that Jesus has been referring to himself as the light of the world all throughout the gospel. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 11, here in chapter 12. It's a, it's a theme 
here in the Gospel of John. And so here he's appealing to these, these, these people who had intellectual hang-ups with him to say, listen, you don't have time to get all your questions answered. You need to give up your life of sin and embrace Jesus by faith, embrace me by faith while there's still time. And he's talking about here, those who reject Christ, they stumble through life not knowing where they came from, where they are, where they're going. And so he spoke here with a sense of urgency. He's warning them to believe in him while there was still this opportunity. And by doing so, they would become sons of light. In other words, they would be assured of direction through this life and and through all eternity. And, And those who don't receive Christ, who reject Christ, they remain in spiritual darkness. And blindness is like they go through like bumping into everything. They don't have a clue where they are, where they're going. And so Jesus is basically saying, listen, guys, time's up. Time's up. You've seen my life. You've heard my message. Light or darkness, you pick. What's your choice? And it says these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Which was probably a very wise move with the authorities lurking, looking for that right moment to strike. He had to get out of the public view. And the last thing we see before he secloisters himself in the upper room with the disciples for the next section of John, chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, is one of the most profound instructions on unbelief found anywhere in the Gospels, verses 37 through 50. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has power to change us to save us, to conform us more to Christ. And Lord, I pray that today Jesus has been seen. That has been our wish, to see Jesus, not anyone or anything else. And Lord, as Christ has been lifted up today through the preaching of your word, I pray that you would draw people to him that you would help people understand the good news of the gospel and that they would, Lord, you would just grant them repentance from holding on to their life and loving their life and not wanting to to, to give it away to Christ. Cause them to hate their life and be willing to give it away so that they could have it back to be used for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.